word. The book of Revelation, chapter 11. I'll read just the first six verses. Though verses 1 through 14 are certainly a section, I'm going to take this one section in two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 6 this morning, and then the next part, verses 7 through 14. Uh, Even in short texts like these, there is much to be gleaned, especially in a book where there is much mystery. Revelation chapter 11, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Then I, that is John, was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles." And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut down heaven, or sorry, shut heaven, so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, We would ask this morning uh, that we might be given over and consumed by and a devotion for the proclamation of your name above every other name in heaven and on earth. That we would see, O Christ, that you are the one who rules the nations. They are but a drop in the bucket, sand upon the scales, ash. They are nothing in their power. And yet we fear men. And Lord, this itself is sin. For whom shall we fear? Why should we be afraid? For you, O Lord, sit upon the throne of heaven and earth. And you rule the nations. And all shepherds, kings, governors, rulers of men are all under your authority. And so we look, O Christ, to you this morning as our great high king. Give us courage. May we be faithful witnesses to your lordship and find in you, O Christ, hope, comfort, And a message of conquest. We will be victorious. And so we stand upon this this morning. Teach us then. We pray in your holy and precious name. Amen. I wrote this week. As a synopsis of this particular text. That what we find in the book of Revelation, especially in the opening chapters and through much of it, 
are prophecies related to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. John was not writing about history that had passed. That means I'm taking the early date approach, and it's fine if you take another. Perhaps in levels of importance, what is more important is to understand that John is writing of the changing of the guard, as it were. He is taking much of what we find in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, these other apocalyptic sections of literature. Uh, If you were to look at the genres of the scriptures, you would find prophetic scriptures. Some of those are prophesying about future events. Some are simply telling us how we are to think about present events. You have wisdom literature. You have gospel. You have indicative or epistles that you often find in the New Testament as it relates to apocalyptic. Apocalyptic does not mean only things that are to come. In fact, oftentimes it doesn't mean that at all. It means how we are to look at things the way they really are. It is a tearing of the veil that lies between what we see and do not see to give us the sort of vision of the clockwork behind the face and the gears and the mechanism. All that churns in the background looks like this. It is a throne room upon which now the Son of God, the Son of Man, Christ himself sits, and he rules from that throne having suffered and bled and died, buried, resurrected, and ascended, the Lamb of God, though slain, is upon the throne, and he is issuing his judgments against those who put him and his prophets to death. And so we continue. In this interlude section, between the sixth and seventh trumpet, just as there was an interlude between the 6th and 7th opening of the seals to show us why things are the way they are. God never, in the scriptures, operates without some level of interpretation telling us what he is doing. Within redemptive history, we see something and then we are told what we are seeing. The prophets are then, in essence... Tour guides through redemptive history. And they tell us how we are to think of the things that have happened, of the things that are happening, and the things that are to come. And so Revelation 11, we find ourselves continuing in this interlude. Specifically, John measures the temple, and he begins by God's sovereignty to show us what will remain and what will be destroyed. So let's look at that this morning. Two points that I want to make. The first, pruning and sifting. Pruning and sifting. And then secondly, the prophetic message. The prophetic message. Let's look at this first point, pruning and sifting. Now what is this measuring? Look at verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. A reed would be a a hollow stick, sort of born and raised in the water. 
It was able to be hollow because it did not require much strength to grow in a somewhat gravityless environment. This reed would be taken out of the water, dried, and then it would be marked in such a way that it could be used as a standard to measure with. Think yardstick, but made of seagrass, essentially. A reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying to John, this is John writing, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. Clear enough. There is one section of the temple that you are to measure, and it is everything within the normal walls of the temple, but you are to leave out the Gentile courts. Now, this measuring is not new. In Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 3, Ezekiel is taken, and we read in verse 3, He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. Now, who is this? This is the Christ. And he, through his prophets, measures Not just the temple, but the people. Look at verse, uh, if you want to keep turning, it's a lot of turning. Listen, Zechariah chapter 2 verse 1. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its length Now, this measuring indicates to us measured, particular, purposeful judgment. That the purpose for John's measuring here, Zechariah in chapter 2, Ezekiel in chapter 40, is to delineate what needs to be torn down. Measured against... The wrath of God. John is giving this measuring rod, and the things that he measures are in the destruction zone. Those things are the temple, the altar, and those who are in it. Now, who is in the temple at this point? Well, in order to understand this, it is necessary that we go back to the life of Christ himself and in that occasion in which Jesus, in his earthly ministry, begins to turn over the tables found within the Gentile court just outside the temple itself. Now, children, if you think of the temple, you need to think of the entire temple complex. The temple was a house. It was a building. And within that building, there was an outer court and an inner court. There was the holy place and then the holy of holies. And as you moved further in, you moved closer to the presence of God as he would come down into the holy of holies. And as you went in and the places got more holy or set apart, so too the people who could enter there. But God, in his mercy, in his forbearance, in his wisdom to show the Jews that the temple and its complex was not just for those who had Jewish mothers, who were the biological descendants of Abraham, 
but who were Jewish by confession and by repentance. There was the Gentile court. Now, all of this in the Old Testament, all of the civil ceremony, all of the altar, proclaimed the Messiah. And what the Messiah would do in his coming would make irrelevant all of those spaces. Because in Christ Jesus, all men are accepted as holy. What Christ was doing is he was, in essence, making sure the holy of holies would cover over all of the earth. And so the mission of the Jewish nation was not only to be set apart as holy to the Lord, but to provide those sojourners, those who wandered in the nation of Israel to provide for them a place where they might worship their God. And the reason why Jesus goes into the Gentile court, which was a multi-acre area, acres upon acres, he turns the tables over. While the young people of Israel are cheering him on was because the Jews had provided no quarter, no place for the Gentiles to go. They had eliminated that court for the Gentiles. It would be in the same way if you and I gathered at Reformation OPC and we locked the doors to all visitors which many churches do functionally, I guess, right? Because they are not willing and ready to present them with the gospel of peace. And for this and other crimes or sins, the Jewish people would be judged. Christ's turning of the tables is a preview of Christ's judgment of the temple Here in the book of Revelation. And so in Romans chapter 9, Paul writes of this shift when Christ begins to deal with the Gentile court, the Gentile nations. What shall we say then? Paul asks. That Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained to righteousness. Even the righteousness of faith, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Even the righteous are because they did not seek it by faith, rather, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, for whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Now, as I've been preaching from the book of Deuteronomy, the law and the gospel are not at odds with one another. They are there by God to keep his people walking in covenant faithfulness with him. They're like the curbs on the side of the road, the pillar of stones that are the moral law, and the pillar of stones that is the altar. We look to the law as instruction as how to live, our need for the altar. Then we look to the altar and we see in Christ we are forgiven. And so we turn back to the law and say, now we are made able to keep it. But when we disobey it, where do you look? Back to the altar. That is how we are to Walk in faithfulness. We read narrow is the way, but that way is bordered by the glorious law 
in the gracious gospel. What the Jews did was they erred in saying, by keeping this law, we do not need the altar. Now, oftentimes in the church today, we say, because we have the altar, we don't even need to look at the law. Neither of these ways is right. God will bring judgment upon Israel, for they have sought salvation, not in the altar, but in law. They could not then... When God, when the Old Testament rebuked them of their sins, be humbled, be humbled, for they sought salvation in the law and not in grace by faith. And so here they're being measured. They're being measured for the suit that they will be buried in. The temple is being measured because it is that upon which Christ will pour out his wrath. And it is not just the place, that place that has stood empty now for two millennia. The destruction of the, of the temple in Jerusalem, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Romans, by those Gentiles who for 42 months laid siege. But it is the people. What that means is this. We will be judged in relationship to the house into which we go for refuge. There is the ark or there is the earth. There is the temple who is Christ or the temple that the Jews trusted in to bring them salvation. It is not merely that it was outmoded, but the temple had become for the Jews a place of self-righteousness and not the righteousness of God freely given. And so they're being measured. Not just the place, but the people who are in it. They had rebelled time and time and time again. In fact, in much of Christ's earthly ministry, he goes to the religious leaders of the day, and this is the question that he often poses to them. Did you not read? Talk about a, a charge that could be leveled against the church in the West. Did you not read? Have you not understood? When Christ speaks to Nicodemus about the new birth of being regenerated, born of spirit and water, he is merely going back to the Old Testament and taking from the Old Testament a particular text and interpreting that text, and I will wash you with water, with the whole plan of God's redemptive purposes seen in the rest of Scripture. The great problem to our ignorance, even as Christians, is the problem that Christ confronts. Have you not read? And most Christians say, you mean the Bible? <laughs> yes! Now, I'm not saying it will be easy for believe me, even as I move through the book of Revelation, I'm going, um, guys, can you help me here? I need a little bit of help. But what you find is what commentators really do is they point you back to a passage that is more clear or it makes the book of Revelation abundantly more clear in the reading of another passage. 
We let scripture interpret scripture. But when your heart is cold and lost in sin and idolatry, then no measure, no volume of scripture can bring you illumination and salvation if the spirit of Christ is not working in you. And what we see in the history of Israel is prophet after prophet, word after word, warning after warning, promise of blessing after promise coming to them, and they have stopped up their ears, and they have shut their hearts down, and they refuse to listen to God. Now remember that promise that God made to Abraham so long ago. He said, I will be a blessing to you that you might be a blessing to the nations. Practically speaking, what that looks like is this. And I'm not saying we need to, I'm not prescribing this. This is just a bit of a metaphor. When you come to church, you who come regularly should sit down front so that there is a place in the back for visitors. Now, that may seem a bit colloquial and so practical that how could that be derived from Scripture? But what God always wants the people of God to do and to think and how they are to function in their worship and in their lives is to always leave something for those who are not part of the household of faith. Acts of mercy, provision, right? Don't glean your, or don't um, harvest your fields all the way up to the edge. But leave something for the sojourner and the widow. When you think of the ministry of the church, don't fashion it in such a way that when people come, they're just so blown away by the strangeness of it, they don't understand the significance of it. But preserve a place within the covenant community of the saints where sojourners are welcome. Now, I may look at you and go, what is up with you guys? You guys are weird. But that's okay. That is inherent to the ministry of the covenant community. But here Christ is coming, and in a final act of ascended, transcendent judgment... Right? We live in a world now where if you get on Twitter at all and you speak as a Christian of the conviction of Christ's sovereign rule on earth, you're going to get a lot of people who want to sort of say, well, wait, 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 wait a second. Remember, Jesus is sweet. Jesus is tender. Jesus, and he is, all of those things. But he is also upon the throne of heaven and earth, and he is a king who rules by a righteous standard. And you cannot reject the lordship of Christ and ally yourself with the world and hope to be freed from the judgment that is to come. Christ says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. But Christ also says to men like the rich young ruler, you going to do it? And he in his pride cannot do it, and so he is cast out of the presence of Christ. Or here, where he gives John very clear instructions 
as to what will remain and what will not. And here is what Christ is doing. He is clearing the temple. He is breaking one thing down. He is destroying something so that something new and glorious may be built in its place. In order for the Gentile nations to be reached, it can never be said, you must become a Jew. And what Jesus does in history is what Paul does doctrinally in the epistles. Do not ever say that to come to Christ you must first be circumcised in the flesh. That is not righteousness by faith. For even Abraham, what? Believed And then was circumcised. And what the Jews did was they put the cart before the horse. They used the law to drive righteousness. And they were judged for it. And not only this, but what did they do to the Lord of glory? They preferred a murderer and they put him to death. And so the Gentiles would not only be the means of destroying the temple. Look at verse 2. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses. But the Gentiles would also inherit the temple. Christ would give the temple to someone else. Christ would give to the nations of the world an opportunity to be gathered in. And not in one place, right? There is no Mecca. There is no Jerusalem. The OPC does have headquarters. (laughs) But it is not necessary that you go there once in your life as a pilgrimage to Philadelphia. I've been there. I like North Carolina. (laughs) But he's clearing the world for the courts of the nations. He is providing in destroying the temple. He is opening up for you and for me and the nations an opportunity to be gathered and brought near. And this message is an ancient message. And there have been countless witnesses to that message. That Christ will bring destruction so that he might, through his finished work upon the cross, through his apostles, through the ministry of the church, build a kingdom that will stand forever. Second point, the prophetic message. We read not only of this measuring, this coming judgment... But verse 3, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, again, symbolic. I would gather, I would take these two witnesses to be the entire prophetic message spoken by all of the prophets of the Old and even in the New Testament for a moment, John the Baptist, of the coming of the Messiah that spells an end to the sacrificial system and the need to be saved by grace through faith. This number, this designation of time, 
It's set in different ways, 42 months, 1,260 days, or three and a half years, is repeated. And it speaks of a supernatural work of God, an indication that something is coming. And it bears witness here in the message of the prophets, these witnesses, that God is about to do something. And these witnesses speak of In messages of woe, look at that, clothed in sackcloth at the end of verse 3, the very thing that John is now foretelling. These witnesses come and they speak to the people of Israel and they say, judgment is coming. I've said it once, I'll say it again. In terms of redemptive history, God acts... And then God explains what he's doing or about to do or has done. Because you and I, regardless of how intelligent we think ourselves to be, are spiritually slow of heart and mind. We need to be told. We need guides. We need interpreters. We need prophets. We need apostles. And these two witnesses here are mentioned. And the things that they do, the reason why I say it's not just two... But the prophets is because the acts that are attributed to them are attributed to more than just two. We see that in verses 4 through 7. But the Old Testament prophets spoke of cataclysm, that is judgment, for the rejection of the Messiah. And here it has reached full fruit. The time has come. As Christ said in chapter 10, it's here. Judgment is about to fall. The temple is about to be destroyed. The city is about to be sacked. Get out of the city unless you wish to be judged. Now, let's look at verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven. So that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, as I read this, you're probably thinking, right? Your Old Testament brain, what you know of what you have read in the Old Testament, should begin to sort of spool up, and you say, oh, wait, I know of that. Now, you may or may not know of what we find in verse 4, two olive trees and two lampstands. We find that. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 4. In fact, the whole chapter is devoted to Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua. And in that chapter, they labor as olive trees and lampstands before God. And they minister in Israel to deliver to them a message of woe and warning. And they're called olive trees and lampstands because they stand before God as holy, used by him to deliver a message to Israel. But then let's look at verse 5. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. I think of the altars and the prophets of Baal. Think of Elijah. And Elisha, think of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Look at verse 6. The power to shut heaven 
How long was rain kept for the land of Israel in the days of Elijah? 1,260 days. 42 months or three and a half years. Now, is that coincidence? Are these some strange meteorological phenomenon? No. This is the sovereign action of God showing himself to be the one who brings judgment so that when you see these numbers and you see the timing and the theme of it all, you say it is God who is doing this through his servants, the prophets. Not to mention water turned to blood. Kids, when did God turn water to blood? The book of Exodus, when Moses came. And those curses brought against the land. And Moses time and time and time again said to Egypt and the Pharaoh, let my people go. Now those were plagues brought against Egypt. Here these plagues, this judgment is brought against Israel. Why? Because their rebellion had reached the level, the offense, not just of Egypt, but had gone beyond the sin of Egypt. For it's one thing to not know what is right and to do the wrong thing. It is another thing to be told time and time again and to be brought back and to be brought back and renewed time and again by the Lord to continue in the face of warning and woe to continue to rebel. Kids, this is what breaks the heart of your parents most, right? Not childishness. For there's no sin in that, necessarily. Not doing something wrong that you did not know was wrong. Because sometimes that happens, especially when you're young. But when your parent looks at you and you're reaching your hand out to touch something, and you look at them and they say no, and you go, that is wanton rebellion, willful disobedience. And what God has time in the scriptures and again said to Israel is, don't go after other idols. And what did Israel get for their idolatry? Invasion and dead children. They were cast into captivity. And then they were restored. And no sooner were they restored to Israel than they did what? They began to worship idols again. Christ, in the final judgment, for the rejection of the Messiah for their idols, is bringing against them the fulfillment of all that the prophets, the witnesses, had said concerning the temple. And these signs and powers are indications of the power and the truth and the validity of their prophecies. Despite the fact, however... That these prophets had great power and performed miraculous signs, Israel still looked at them and didn't get it. They ignored it. And what is the call of Christ? That the sum and substance of the prophetic ministry was flee to Christ. Christ does this. To the woman, the sinful Samaritan woman at the well, where she enters into 
ignorantly a theological discussion with Jesus because she wishes to, in essence, change the subject about her own embarrassing sin and adultery. She's testing the, the, the validity, the knowledge of this rabbi. And he says it's not on this hill or that hill, but it is in spirit and in truth that the disciples of God will come and worship. So it's not this slope or another slope, right, where a church house might be built, but it is in the name of Christ. It is through Christ by his spirit, and yet there were those who clung to the place, to the place, because they had not read, because they had not heeded Because they not only rejected the testimony of the witnesses, but as we will see next, next week, in this next section, they killed them. When you muzzle a dog, why do you do it? Because it's biting or barking. You do it to silence it. When you muzzle a preacher, why do you do it? Either because he is preaching falsehood, and he needs to be stopped up, as Paul would say, silence the false teachers... Or if you are wicked, you do it because he is speaking truth and you don't wish to hear it. But just because you turn the volume down on the prophets and you crucify the Lord of glory does not mean you flee. What they have said will come. It's coming. And here is what you and I know that the world does not know. This is why things are the way they are. And the world is just sort of flitting about, doing their thing, going about their business. And they have no concept that it is Christ who is upon the throne. And your responsibility and mine are to be faithful witnesses so that there may be those who are not measured in judgment. And here's what preaching is. I wish I had a visual aid. What the preaching of the word of God is, it's going up to the nations and you take a measuring tape and you either fit them for robes of glory or suits of destruction. That's what the preaching of the word will do. When a prophet speaks, I'm talking about small p prophets here, right? (laughs) You're not getting any new information from me as it relates to the word laid down. It might be new for you, certainly new for me. As I'm learning it, what the word of God does is it measures us. It reveals to us our standing before a holy God. And we are either in the court that will be saved or in the house that will be destroyed. And there is one thing that makes a difference. One is built as a house in honor of Christ and the other is a house that is built to the glory of men. Guess which one will be torn down? And has been torn down time and time and time again. In fact, Christ loves to take your little idols and smash them right in front of your face. (laughs) But he and his glory and his grace will stand forever. And so what for us, other than the information that is given here, so that we might rightly understand the book of Revelation, which is good, it's a good objective, to rightly understand the word of God, but to apply it, Hear the message of the witnesses. Be members of the true house. 
and then bear witness to the glory of Christ in whom we alone are saved. Let's pray. Lord.